Geopolitics and Empire is joined once again by Gregory Copley, author, historian, and strategic analyst. He's worked at the highest levels of government around the world and is a member of the Order of Australia. He's the founder of Defense and Foreign Affairs and president of the International Strategic Studies Association. He's written some absolutely fantastic books, such as Sovereignty in the 21st Century and The New Total War of the 21st Century, Trigger of the Fear Pandemic. Good afternoon, Gregory. Th uh, thanks for coming back on. How are things in D.C.? Well, wonderful to be back with you, and it's a brilliant day in uh, in the D.C. area today, weather-wise. Uh, I just returned from a lunch where a chastened Terry McAuliffe was sitting at the next table, the chap who just lost the uh, Virginia gubernatorial elections, and uh, that, that I think is an indication of how things are going in uh, U.S. national politics. There's been a great sea change uh, literally coming over the recent years, but it's really galvanizing this year. Well, th that's uh, fascinating. And if we have time, maybe I can get your comment on that uh, towards the end. But um, it seems a, a lot is going on, of course, both uh, in the world and, and in Africa, which is uh, what I wanted to get you on for um, in your latest strategic policy journal, as well as uh, some articles you've had published for the Epoch Times. You've been discussing Washington's loss of strategic dominance in the Red Sea and in Ethiopia. Uh, I read this week that Washington and its allies, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Britain, were basically begging Sudan to undo its military coup, which continues to sound like a loss of dominance by Washington in Sudan uh, as well. The Wall Street Journal has said that military coups in Africa are at their highest level since the end of colonialism. Then we recently had another U.S.-Iran now, naval standoff, and by some accounts, it seems Iran forced the U.S. to stand down. If we throw the exit from Afghanistan on top of that, things don't really seem to be going well for the U.S. in terms of strategic dominance. In your Epoch Times piece, you discuss how Beijing, Moscow, Ankara have pushed Washington out of the Red Sea. So perhaps starting with you know what's happening in Africa, could you help us make sense of these great power struggles and seeming decline of uh, American influence? Well, if you look at Africa, you see the decline of all powers uh, in, in that continent, all the external powers, whether it's the People's Republic of China, the United States or the Europeans, former colonial powers. Uh, the reality is that the African continent, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, is largely rudderless at the moment. It's not uh, receptive to pressures from any foreign powers, particularly the United States or the Europeans. Uh, the People's Republic of China, ha having run out of cash for its Belt and Road Initiative, has basically retreated from the continent to a large extent. Yes, it has left a large uh, population of uh, immigrant Chinese people on the continent, and it's left some really impressive infrastructure, which it was ben is beneficial for uh, the African continent. But uh, the People's Republic of China has literally disappeared overnight. And in some of the African countries, like Ethiopia, they so alienated the population and the governments there that they are really not welcome. Uh, but neither is the United States, neither is the European Union. Um, Britain is, is perhaps poised to come back slightly and regain some influence because it's got a little more credibility, particularly since it uh, uh, obtained uh, its Brexit, its exit from the European Union. But uh, we did a piece a few months ago, uh, which basically said that coup season is back in Africa, and your uh, opening comments made that clear. Uh, the reality is that there is no downside today for a military organization or a putschist in an African state from staging a coup. Uh, and we saw that with not only with the uh, the Guinea Conakry. Uh, coup by the Special Forces Commander a, a couple of months ago, we saw it with the uh, the coup in Sudan. Now, the coup in Sudan was predictable, and we, in fact, also wrote a piece about that in at the beginning of 2021, saying that the Sudanese military were being pushed to uh, go ahead with their plans to overthrow the transitional government and the, and the civilian component of that, uh, because uh, the, the Egyptians were anxious to see the military back in power uh, in Sudan, not in a way which would encourage the Sudanese military to uh, give a new home once again, 
to the Muslim Brotherhood who fled from Egypt, but because the Egyptian military wanted the Sudanese military to add pressure onto the Ethiopians on, their, on the Ethiopian-Sudan border. And to that end, for example, the Egyptian government uh, in the last few months has sent large numbers of troops, aircraft and ships uh, down the Red Sea to, uh, to Sudan to participate in joint exercises, all of which were geared toward uh, the uh, attack, potential attack on Ethiopia, ostensibly to seize territory in Ethiopia, including the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile. Um, now, the objective for that is, is purely symbolic because Egypt is saying that uh, Ethiopia is somehow thinking about stealing its own water from the Blue Nile and th therefore denying it to the Egyptian people. The reality is that Ethiopia is allowing a, a free flow of Nile waters uh, down, the, uh, despite the building of the dam and the filling of the dam. The, the reality is that the Sudanese have already said that the flow of waters down the Nile is not being diminished. And in any event, even if the Egyptians and the Sudanese were to take over the dam in Ethiopia and blow it up, there wouldn't be any more water coming down to Egypt. The problem with Egypt and its water shortage is not that the flow of Nile waters has diminished, but that the population of Egypt has quadrupled in the past 30 or 40 years. And of course, their demands for water have increased. And at the same time, Egypt's management of, of its, its share of the Nile waters has been increasingly inefficient. So you've got uh, a series of cat cat uh, catastrophes emerging in Africa, uh, no international influences, no um, pressures not to have coups and to abandon, if you like, what we call de democratic governance in the Western style, uh, So, and growing populations there. You've got two areas in the world where populations are growing, and that's Africa and India. The rest of the world is seeing po population decline. Uh, that, that population decline is obviously being disguised by transnational migration and by urbanization, which gives the appearance that things are uh, societies are getting bigger, but in fact, the core global population is, you know, getting ready to literally fall precipitously, and that's going to have a major impact on economics. But if you look at Africa uh, again, as I say, you've got uh, the foreign powers unable to exert influence on African states to uh, to stay on the quote democratic uh, straight and narrow, and none of the regional bodies has any real authority to, uh, to punish states which which do have coups like as i say guinea uh, in in recent months or sudan and the international bodies united nations and the like have again diminished authority and influence because people know that the the penalty for uh for going their own way is is that not there anymore yeah i i think th those two are those are the two key points uh you know the the post-world war ii international uh order that we've had is is fracturing and so uh th there's no consequences there for the african states and something you mentioned in the previous um uh, interview we did about you know democracy for now being gone and so those kind of like two trends uh we have and and maybe to get uh if you have any comments on uh, this week has been interesting what's been going on between algeria and, and morocco where apparently the moroccan army killed a few algerian nationals and it seems you know there's talk about algeria wanting to start a war and then they shut off the algeria morocco spain gas pipeline which is the first time in 25 years that it's been uh, turned off so again is this just a, a localized uh, feud that's you know just another example of what what you've been discussing um what do you make of that well, yes, it's, it's the traditional Morocco-Algeria feud, but that has a number of elements. You, you look at Morocco, and it's been a traditional society, feudal and tribal in some respects, but in fact, a very modern society in many other respects. And uh, But the Moroccan people have an historical sense of identity around the kingdom, uh, and that includes the Western Sahara portion of the country, which reverted to Morocco after the brief or a, a Spanish uh, occupation of, of the of Western Sahara. Um, but when you look at Algeria, Algeria is what we would term, uh, defined itself as a modern Arab socialist state. 
And this, is a, this was a transitory 20th century form uh, of identity, which really hasn't fared well. I mean, Egypt has veered back to, towards its more traditional uh, sense of itself in some respects. You still have uh, Iraq, which got through that socialist Ba'athist period, uh, Syria, uh, still caught up in it to a degree, but you know, the, the, that wave of post-colonial uh, Arab socialist states, which in, in a sense were secular, they denied the tribal and regional cultural components of their identity. Uh, and so th they've all gone by the wayside and have had to reshape themselves. In the case of Algeria, we have to bear in mind that Al Algeria was never a an historical nation state in its own right. You did have the, the Bay of Algiers, the, the leader uh, of the people of Algiers, that city, port city for, for many years. But, but essentially uh, you, you saw that small community in Algiers uh, going from uh, the, the domination of, uh, of colonial powers, particularly the, the Ottoman Turks, uh, which is why the, the modern Turkish state wishes to have more influence in in uh, North Africa, Libya, and, and uh, Algeria, particularly, but uh, Algeria then moved from the from Turkish dominance to French dominance, uh, and the state got its identity from an ex from consistent territorial expansion. It was always controlled uh, by an by an urban centre at Algiers, but it gobbled up regions and ter territories and tribes and peoples. It tried to suppress its Berber population, uh, which is exactly the opposite from what um, Morocco did. Morocco encouraged the Berber people to preserve their identity and their language, uh, created a written Berber language, uh, which is now mandatory to be taught in all schools. Uh, so uh, the, this threatens, if you like, the, the, the Algerian metropolitan government because they see uh, regional identities uh, such as the, the large Berber population uh, as threatening that sophisticated urban and largely Franco-Arabic speaking uh, population. And so basically uh, Algeria sees Morocco as everything that's dangerous to it. And that been, and Algeria literally had to, to maintain its sense of forward progress needed territorial expansion. And of course, in the, the post-colonial world, that became very difficult. And the only opportunity that Algeria had to gain a coastline on the Atlantic, which would have made it a truly major power, was to take over Western Sahara, the traditionally Moroccan territory. Uh, and they had that opportunity when the, the, the Spanish ended their colonial occupation there. So the Algerians, of course, formed Polisario, uh, the, uh, the group which was supposedly the representing the peoples of Western Sahara, and they claimed to set up the Sahrawi uh, Arab Democratic uh, Republic. Uh, of course, the, the Algerians and the and Polisario never really occupied any territory within Western Sahara, and so they they have a, a presence in the Timdorf on the border with, with Moroccan, Alger, uh, Moroccan Sahara, uh, and, and this is basically where the Algerians hoped they were going to be able to make their stand and take that territory, get their access to land access to the to the sea in the Atlantic. And uh, that, that was dealt a serious blow by the Abraham Accords, which uh, the outgoing US Trump administration put into place. And one of the aspects of that, of course, was the uh, Morocco formally recognizing Israel, which it had already always regarded as a as a friend and ally, but uh, but also as part of that deal, the United States just wiped away 30 years of bickering about uh, Western Sahara and formally recognized Morocco's uh, sovereignty over Western Sahara. And that ended this, this ridiculous UN debate, which Algeria had bought and paid for, uh, along with the Soviets and the, and the like in the earlier days, to, to keep this uh, fiction alive that there was a somehow a an independent state really waiting to be free in, in Western Sahara. So basically Algiers is fretting over all of this. The Algerian government is in disarray. It's 
it had uh, several successive years of economic decline. Uh, it's got a, 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 an old and stultified leadership. The military has been fighting to retain control through the National Front there, basically. Uh, so basically, you've got a hidden military government there looking to take over again. It needs something. Otherwise, it's just going to disintegrate or face uh, a popular revolt. And the answer to that is start, a, start another war with Morocco. Um, Morocco um, has surprisingly, although it's a small, has been a smaller population, they're now getting to, towards parity. Uh, Morocco has basically beaten the Algerians on every occasion that they've gone to war. Algeria does have the support to, to a degree of Russia. Russia has been a major military supplier. It has the definite support of the People's Republic of China uh, and, and of Iran. But the reality is that Morocco has uh, a lot more flexibility. A lot, it's got a modern army, uh, particularly a modern navy. Their air force, they, they, if they get into a major war, it will be certainly very interesting and not helpful to anybody. But at the end of the day, Algeria cannot put off what is absolutely essential to it, and that is uh, to come up with some kind of rebirth which would revitalise its whole um, polity in many respects, make it more of a country which represents its population. And, and one of the reasons that Algeria gives for war against Morocco is that it says Morocco has been encouraging the Berber minorities uh, in Algeria. Well, um, frankly, the Berber minorities in Algeria have certainly taken inspiration from Morocco, but the Algerians themselves could have brought the Berber population into the mainstream. They just don't want to. All right. Uh, and so you mentioned, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, your explanation as well. Um, it does seem Morocco has the upper hand. They've been saying that they don't want war and they, they're using diplomatic channels and Algeria seems more aggressive and, and typically and that type of behavior kind of signals that Morocco is more uh, confident. And to kind of get back to, to the bigger overarching picture, you, you know, the US-China bipolar dynamic that we have, uh, new Cold War. Um, I recently interviewed a former Soviet military uh, physician who has spent years working in the field of WMDs, counterterrorism and biological warfare. He didn't use your phrase of new total war, but he was essentially describing the same thing, that we are in a fear pandemic, a, a psychological uh, operation, and that the U.S. is uh, at greater and greater risk uh, of you know suffering uh, a lot of different blows. And in your defense and foreign affairs special analysis for subscribers only, you describe how recent reports of the PRC building new ICBM uh, silos may actually be a strategic deception operation aimed at getting the Pentagon to waste its budget on new ICBM systems while China moves on to hypersonic uh, technology. And, you know, this this is absolutely fascinating and that never crossed my mind. This was reported a, a few weeks ago or like a month ago or two. And so can you kind of give us an update on where you think we are in the current uh, new total war between uh, U.S., China and, and their allies? Of course, it's a, a multifaceted uh, discussion. But if we look at the, the bottom line first, the reality is that the People's Republic of China cannot afford under any circumstances to go to war with the, the United States if we look at war as implying uh, direct military confrontation between, uh, between the states. Uh, if that occurs by accident or by, de by deliberate uh, uh, misstep, then the day after there's a military incident between the two countries, ships will stop loading at Long Beach, Oakland, Seattle with massive amounts of food for China, the People's Republic of China. If the, if the United States ceases to supply the food that it is selling to, to the PRC today, then, the, then within the next days, the Chinese public starts to starve. We have not seen a country as existentially dependent upon imported food as the PRC is today since the time of the collapse of Rome. You cannot sustain a major power of this, of this nature, a global power, uh, without food. 
in fact, the prerequisite for uh, a great power is that it becomes a net food exporter. Uh, as a, uh, and the next step is for it to become a net exporter of capital. Well, uh, the Communist Party of China, having discovered a windfall of wealth created by Deng Xiaoping's decision to allow private enterprise, they so the Communist Party of China started spending that. They became a net exporter of capital before they became a net exporter of food. And they realized that becoming a net exporter of food was next to impossible. 20% of the world's population, 7% of the world's water, most of that water is polluted, many natural disasters. Uh, the uh, communist governments since 1949 have taken the Stalinist approach to controlling nature, which by, by which they mean to dam every river. But in fact, they this has not been a, a process which has been a, uh, done very scientifically. And we saw all of the problems of Stalinist dam building, destroying the economies of Central Asia. If you look at the, the drying up of the Aral Sea, uh, look at the Aswan High Dam, which they built in Egypt, which is, again, a big part of Egypt's water problems today. And we look at the thousands of dams built, uh, many thousands of dams built in the People's Republic of China since 1949, and then the literally hundreds and hundreds of them, which have even collapsed in the last year, causing massive and widespread flooding, damage to agriculture, damage to pro property and the like. So there is not a situation which would allow the People's Republic of China to enter a war with the United States with any prospect of winning, even if they undertook a massive cyber <coughs> blow to the US infrastructure and uh, did the cyber equivalent of 9-11, of destroying uh, the electronic or electrical base of northeastern the United States or the any of the five major power grids in the United States. Even if they did that, uh, it it yes, it would destroy the United States, but would it it would it save the People's Republic of China? And the answer is no. Quite the contrary, the, the People's Republic of China must have a, at least a minimal level of food importing to stay viable. They're prepared to really tighten their belts. The Communist Party is prepared to tighten the belts of the public, shall we say, uh, and as they did in the 1956 um, uh, uh, starvation, um, widespread starvation and poverty we saw in China under Mao Zedong. The, the reality is that they will probably go back to that in the next few years anyway, simply because they've run out of cash uh, and, they, uh, and they're continuing to put as much money as they can, not into food production, but into control of the domestic population. What, the, what Deng Xiaoping did was to unleash massive optimism in the Chinese population, uh, which she inherited, but, and she also inherited the situation where they had peaked financially and were running out of cash, and now the economy is, is in free fall, uh, and the Communist Party's answer to that under Xi is to say, okay, well, we will manage that freefall. We'll, in fact, assist in the implosion of the PRC economy and bring the PRC back to an internal circulation model, which means, you know, essentially internal self-reliance, which it cannot do, even with the with the rapidly reducing population levels. So uh, it's going to be a... a uh, a lose-lose situation for Xi Jinping. Uh, the, the, uh, what he has to do, however, that is to continue his wolf warrior diplomacy and his bombast at a very, very high level to show that, quote, he is winning and the United States is losing uh, so that he can get re-elected to a third term as General Secretary of the Communist Party at the October 2022 uh, Party Congress. And it's, it's a very rocky road between now and then. He's facing innumerable crises at home. Uh, and he, but on the other hand, he's, he's sufficiently in control of the security apparatus that he looks like uh, being able to stay the course until October next year. But that's not necessarily guaranteed. What certainly helped him was the US withdrawal from Afghanistan in the fashion that the US did it because it showed the US to be uh, in chaos and declining 
influence, not only in Central Asia, which it had on a plate, it was given the Central Asian region on a plate, and then and then threw it away. Uh, okay, you had 20 misspent years of US military occupation of Afghanistan, where they did not uh, achieve what they should have achieved. But then, uh, rather than retaining any sense of access, they just threw it away by August 30th this year. And I just returned from uh, a week in Uzbekistan, where I was back again, uh, talking to the highest levels of government there and uh, security and military, and the anger towards the United States expressed by the Uzbeks and other Central Asian leaders is absolutely palpable and, and horrifying. So they're now left fighting uh, this massive problem which the US has caused in Afghanistan. And it was a it was a, a disaster for the United States, which Beijing thought it could capitalize on by having access not only to, but through Afghanistan, so that they could build pipelines down to Iran so they could get oil and gas across from Iran. That's that's not going to happen in the lifetime of Xi Jinping. That's for sure. There's chaos in, in Afghanistan and will that will survive for several years. Uh, they two thirds or so at least of their of their government budget has now been removed from them. And even if they were to somehow get given great levels of foreign aid by the US and Europeans, the reality is that they couldn't get in there to both acquire the food aid required and to distribute it because the Taliban won't allow it. So you're going to, you've got already hundreds of thousands of people have left the country and I would say millions more are on the verge of find, trying to find a way up into the Central Asian states, particularly Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and over to Pakistan. The Pakistanis have built a hard border down the Durand line, down those mountains, uh, the sort of thing that... Uh, we were told was not possible to build across the flatlands of the US-Mexico border, but suddenly the, the Pakistanis have built a very significant hard border down the Durand line, which uh, was always criticized since 1947 as being an indefensible uh, border. But the Pakistanis learned their lesson from earlier Afghan crisis, and they're trying to stop the flow of, of Afghanis into Pakistan. Uh, but th this is all part of the story. So really nothing is benefiting uh, China at this stage. And by the way, if, if the People's Republic of China wishes to take its confrontation with the US to the next level, because it needs, if it's going to be a global power, which again, we can start to see might not happen, um, except as a gunpowder state with some ICBMs. We'll talk about that in a second uh, when we talk about the silos. But the reality is that um, they have to get past the first island chain, which means they have to get past Taiwan. And the reality is that although Taiwan has been a political objective uh, to, quote, reunify China, which is another fiction uh, anyway, because the, uh, the, the shape and territorial and mass of China has varied consistently for the last you know, couple of thousand years. So if, if the PRC wishes to attack Taiwan and try and recover Taiwan or try to gain dominance over Taiwan, uh, you've got a, an issue which just wouldn't stack up militarily. Firstly, the Taiwanese probably have the capacity to reduce the cross-straits uh, amphibious forces of the People's Liberation Army Navy uh, dramatically, and even now the PLA Navy does not have sufficient sea lift to carry a, a key uh, invading force across the straits. And I, I mean, I spent many years looking at it from the other side when the talk in Taiwan always used to be, the cry was, and the toast at old dinners was back to the mainland. Well, uh, when you looked at what it would take to do uh, an amphibious lift of Taiwanese across to the mainland of China, uh, it was very, very difficult. However, it was, that would be much easier than... Oops, I, I, and I, I, th I think that might be called the porcupine doctrine. I, I recently interviewed an Italian uh, academic and we were discussing this and that Taiwan has this kind of like a buffer to, to basically do what you say to keep China, uh, you know, defeat them uh, on, on the beach if they would ever get to 
Taiwan. Well, well that's right. I mean, that, that was the old doctrine. And, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, it was um, a doctrine devised by the U.S. Naval War College for the Taiwanese, the, um, the porcupine strategy. And, and that was basically to say to the Taiwanese, don't even think about back to the mainland, think about stopping an, a, a PLA attack on the island. The reality is that, uh, and I've been talking to Taiwanese for many years about this, Taiwan moved from being a land power, which it, uh, with the, the Republic of China, was a land power when it was on the mainland, as a country which centred on Taiwan, it was no longer a land power. It was, by, by default, a maritime power. 98, 99% of its trade is carried on by sea. Therefore, it had to expand its navy, and they began to do that. And uh, But the, the uh, if you like, the gradual move from the porcupine strategy was that the PLA Navy, uh, under its two commanders ago, Richard uh, Admiral Richard Chen, they started to build new types of warship, which were high-speed, highly manoeuvrable, uh, wave-piercing catamaran vessels, which could manoeuvre, carry a lot of missile uh, weight, and disrupt uh, an, a PRC invading force. But if you looked at, uh, as we did, at the the original back to the mainland approach, it was much. E it would be much easier for Taiwan to mount a, a maritime invasion of the PRC than the reverse, because there are limited number, numbers of landing spots on Taiwan uh, for for the PLA Navy to put troops ashore. On the other hand, there are many spots on the PRC, on the mainland Chinese coast, where troops could be put ashore. Uh, so, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. Not that the Taiwanese can in any way contemplate that at this stage. But uh, you've got the situation where if Taiwan is threatened with the military action, firstly, the Taiwanese would inflict major damage. And the reality is that the Taiwanese defensive capability is growing faster than the, uh, than the PRC's offensive military capability. At the same time, Japan has said that if uh, the PRC in, was to launch a military attack on Taiwan, that would threaten Japan. Therefore, Japan would become militarily involved in the defense of Taiwan. And because of the Japan-US treaty, that would automatically involve the United States. So again, it gets to, to a no-win situation for the for the PRC. And the one of the authors of the original um, mainland Chinese or Communist Party of China doctrine, which is unrestricted warfare, we, which we talked about before, uh, one of the authors of that actually went public about a year ago and said that Xi Jinping was basically threatening the security of, uh, of, of the People's Republic of China by talking about a planned invasion of Taiwan because it was not feasible, wasn't the time to even talk about it. There were plenty of other priorities on the plate. And, and, and some of the other things that, that would arise from uh, a deliberate military assault on Taiwan is, is the fact that uh, India would automatically initiate military action against the PRC and the PLA uh, on the Tibetan plateau. They would also immediately move to cut into uh, Azad Kashmir, the, that northern part of, of Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, which gives the PRC its land bridge down into the Indian Ocean. So uh, while the PLA was supposedly attacking Taiwan, the Indians would just cut across uh, the no northern Kashmir, Indi uh, Pakistani Kashmir, uh, and cut off China's land bridge to the Indian Ocean and give India its own land bridge to the Wakhan corridor of Afghanistan and then up to Tajikistan and, and so on. So that would that would actually isolate the People's Republic of China in a way which they're trying to avoid doing. So all of this means that this conflict is unworkable. And the the reality is that the the PRC doctrine of unrestricted warfare is that the military is used only in, uh, against smaller targets if it's going to be used in, kinetically at all. But it, it is there to project power 
and to gain prestige. And to do that, it has to be substantial. It's got to be well-trained and it's got to be accomplished and, and look accomplished. And therefore, it will gain prestige and, and the PRC will gain influence. And people will be afraid to engage it in a way which might provoke military action. But the reality is that the PRC knows that 99% of its active warfare operations are non-military. And the government, even of, of the Russian Federation, uh, came out with a decree in June last year, which we discussed in, in the book, uh, The New Total War, which gave the Russian general staff authority over all of society conflict operations in the future on the understanding, the Russian government said, that in the future, as much as 80% of all warfare would be non-military. And as I say, the, as far as the People's Republic of China is concerned or the Communist Party of China is concerned, it's actually you know 99.8% uh, of all warfare is non-military or, or non-kinetic. So the, the problem is that in the West, we can consistently view warfare and threats of warfare in, in, in solely in the military and kinetic context. We think of warfare as engaging the armed forces and we ask the armed forces to respond and they do so uh, to the uh, thinking that, well, okay, our mandate is this bit with the guys in uniform and this bit with the, with the weapons, instead of saying, look, we have to consider ourselves as part of a, a new total war in which uh, a commander-in-chief can actually coordinate all of the aspects of the society and the economy uh, to, to mobilise in the defence of the nation and in the projection of power. And uh, the, look, the, the PRC uh, defined it as medical warfare, legal warfare or lawfare, um, as well as population warfare, medical warfare, there are all kinds of ramifications. But the reality is that everything is about warfare. This, this, this kind of brings me to another concern uh, I had. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you have any, I was going to ask, you know, what, what other issue uh, are, are you most thinking about uh, or, or, or risk today globally? For me, it's something that you mentioned last time that, that I'm still thinking about, which is, and I think you touched on it, this kind of um, unconventional type of uh, warfare having to do with, you know, medical aspects or, 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 or laws. And in the West, myself as a Westerner, uh, I'm kind of freaked out at our loss, our continued loss of democracy, which, which you discussed and how um, a lot of like um, strange things are happening, in, especially in the Western countries, also in, in the East, where all these restrictions are coming into place. You know, or, or we're under this pandemic emergency for years now, and it's not going uh, away. And um, our Western governments are, you know, trying to pass laws where they're restricting travel, res restricting rights, uh, free speech rights, all, all sorts of things. And I mean, that's my biggest concern at the moment. And what are you most th thinking about? What else are you most thinking about? And, and any comment on the our, our erosion of democracy? Well, I think if you understand that the principal tool of governance, the principal tool of warfare, is psychological. It's not physical at all, uh, because the essence of power is the domination of the will. To, to you dominate your adversary's will, you dominate the will of your own population in, to get them to support you and the like. And this is a psychological exercise. Everything begins and ends in the mind. If you have to resort to physical warfare then uh, as sun tzu said you know you've basically wasted your opportunity uh, so the what we saw in, in 2020 was perhaps for the first time maybe not for the first time but the first time in a in a really seamless sense we saw a global mass psychosis where people had been induced into literally a wave of panic, which was not justified by the facts on the ground, in other words. And that's why I called that last book, uh, uh, The Internal War of the 21st Century and the Trigger of the Fear Pandemic, 
because it, it we saw that and it was it was not surprising that it occurred in 2020 which was a US election year when it was opportune to to give politicians tools to uh, berate an opponent or to or to create sufficient fear that you motivated an electorate that way um, and yes we have seen in 2021 and going into 2022 the reality that politicians having found a way to exceed their uh, social contract their their um, mandate to govern don't want to surrender that that authority but you you talk about the concern of uh, over democracy well of course uh, we but then we have to ask ourselves what do we mean by democracy um, basically what we mean in the West by democracy is electoral democracy. In other words, a scheduled um, ballot box resolution of our political fate every two years, three years, four years, whatever. Uh, and the reality is that democracy is is far more than that. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, we, we've, 200 years ago, we didn't see discussions about democracy or say 250 years ago. Um, it was literally the uh, the framing of the American Constitution by what the Americans call the founding fathers that really started to drag up a lot of ancient ideas. And they got a lot of those from Athens and Rome, but arguably they could have got them from the Indus Valley uh, civilizations of four or 5,000 years ago uh, where they had, quote, democracies. Um, the Greeks gave it a, gave it a name, and by giving it a name, they may have done us a disservice because uh, they allowed the Americans to channel this down in a way which w was rigid, and, and, and rigid structures are, are not good at surviving massive storms. Um, arguably, as well, the the founding fathers in the United States created their view of democracy from the Magna Carta, um, the Magna Carta Libertatum, which was supposedly a charter of freedoms, uh, which which uh, the, the barons uh, rung out of King John at Runnymede. Okay, that was, they, they, that was a substantial document, uh, and it, it started the process of thinking about, okay, uh, how do we move this dispersion of power, this social contract between the governed and the governors into a way which was viable and which represented a sense of equity so that you didn't have one side of the equation uh, getting out of control or, or feeling unduly dispossessed. Uh, so now we're in the situation where uh, I tell Americans, you, you, you created a constitution and a framework, Bill of Rights and the like, which meant that the government was subject to the will of the governed. These people assigned certain rights to elected officials for a certain period of time. But now what we see is that this has been reversed and we've, we've returned de facto to a situation in the West, not just in the United States, of, of what argue historically would have been called tyranny, where the people are once again subject to the will of the of the government. Um, so that's that was the exact opposite of what the U.S. Revolution was supposedly about. Uh, frankly, the you could argue that the U.S. people now have more uh, regulation governing them; they have more taxations than they ever had under the British colonial administration up until 1776. Um, but the key is, you know, people say, well, at least we decide what, you know, what burden we want to put on our own back. And fair enough. Um, but the reality is that democracy has always been a transitory element of, uh, in, the, in social management throughout human history. And right now it is going out of favour again. Uh, and it's going out of favour rapidly, largely because of the success of the democratic West winning, arguably, World War II. 
So you then had a clear division of the world between states which were unelected, run by unelected governments, the People's Republic of China, uh, Soviet Union and the like, the Warsaw Pact, and, and the Western states, which arguably had a lot more freedom of movement, freedom of choice, freedom to elect and, dis and dispossess governments. Um, but with, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Deng Xiaoping revolution in the People's Republic of China, we saw the whole world move to becoming engaged in short-term uh, material transactionalism. So everything was about money, about immediate gratification. You could get what you wanted uh, materially. You could more or less go where you wanted if, if you were a post-Soviet Russian or Russian bloc citizen. Uh, you could almost do that, or certainly to a great degree, within the People's Republic of China. Uh, so what differentiated the so-called non-free states, Russia, China, People's Republic of China, and Western Europe and the United States? And as, as we remember, Václav Klaus, the president of the Czech Republic, famously said on many occasions to me directly, said, we didn't get rid of the Soviet Union to create another one. And yet that's what's happened in, in the European Union. It's what's happening in the United States and Canada, Australia and the like. We're seeing this draconian form of power grab by politicians. And so the differentiation between the West and the East is becoming minimal. Yes, the United States still has an appeal uh, as a destination from from people in poor countries wanting to uh, to get a better life. But the, but the reality is that this is not based on any intellectual discussion or any hope of gaining uh, freedom because the great, the great underpinning of Western democracy wasn't the ballot box, it was freedom. And right now we're seeing this erosion of freedoms around the world. Uh, and so the, the answer is, what is the moral superiority of the West at this point? And this is a, a question which began to be raised in 1917 by um, uh, with the, the Oswald Spengler and the decline of the West. Uh, and, and, and it's taken all this time for it to mature through uh, the, the, the world. And Spengler saw also that this process was greatly enhanced by the creation of what he called megalopolises, super cities, um, not, not being a good words to translate his, his interpretation into English from German. But um, so we're, we're, we're at that point. And, you know, you couple that with the, the, the historical truth that civilizations and empires tend to have an average lifespan of, of 250 or so years. Uh, and and where are we with you know much of the European society? It's invented itself. It's reinvented itself. The United States is now in a position where it's going to have to reinvent itself if it's not going to collapse. And the and the reinvention would I, I suspect look something like the collapse of the Roman Republic and the interregnum before the rise of the Roman Empire. And and we saw was it thirty or, or, or more years of instability in the Roman Empire before it recovered in the in the Western Empire. Um, and, and of course, led to the, uh, you saw the ultimate split with the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. So what's going to happen in the United States? Certainly nobody, as long as they have the electoral uh, capability, is going to vote for the removal of entitlements, unemployment, uh, social security, uh, just mass handouts of one form or another no they want to keep that and they they say yes i know it's bankrupting the country and i know it's unsustainable but you know not while i'm alive let's keep the keep the cash flowing so the u.s keeps building debt and building printing money but sooner or later everybody knows that has to stop and you can't rebuild until you've, you've stopped the process of uh, of the accretion of unworkable um Policies. It's 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 again. It's like, and I always equate societies to the individual body. You know, you can uh, you, you go through phases, as Shakespeare said. 
the seven ages of man. But uh, what we do is we go through our period of vigor and growth, uh, and then we start accustoming accustoming ourselves to a, a, an unhealthy diet, and and uh, we have sclerotic arteries, and uh, we can no longer function. So we either have to clear out those arteries and get back to basics, or we die. Yeah, it's it's all a bit hard uh, for us to digest, you know. And and my biggest concern, maybe less democracy, as you were saying, just the freedoms and liberties that I've become used to, and just having less freedoms um, and liberties. And I'm a huge fan, by the way, as you mentioned, of, of Vaslav uh, Klaus. I, I really love um, him and the work that he does. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know if there's any other um, thought or, or point you, you want to um, leave us with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of, one of the immediate concerns, which uh, I'm distressed about, as the United States goes through this period of massive decline in prestige and influence, it's using its bulk in, in much the same way as Xi Jinping is using his wolf warrior diplomacy, is bragging, is yelling and screaming and thumping of tables. Uh, but the US is doing the same thing now in the Horn of Africa. It's basically caused this civil war which is underway in Ethiopia today. Certainly the Ethiopian government has mismanaged itself you know, to an incredible degree and uh, they haven't recovered from the the hope which was being built up during the imperial period uh, until 1974 when the, the coup uh, overthrew and killed Emperor Haile Selassie. But what we've seen is now a, a, a Marxist uh, terrorist group, the TPLF, which had seized power uh, in, in 1991 with the collapse of the another communist power, the DERG, and they, they're now at large running a genocidal war against uh, other type, other ethnicities in Ethiopia, particularly the Amhara people and the Afar uh, or Somali peoples and the like. And so we've got this genocidal war, which is being supported by the Biden administration in the United States. And the same people who are running that policy uh, in Ethiopia were the ones who ran the policy to break up Yugoslavia and to break up Serbia. The same people, this is a Clinton and, and uh, Obama peoples as they became, and, and they, they're using the same language and the same methodology to support the TPLF and to oppose the government of Ethiopia uh, that they used you know, in, uh, in the breakup of Yugoslavia. And, and we know in, in the former Yugoslavia, all of the uh, leaders of the states at that time, whether in Croatia or in Serbia, uh, were basically uh, products of the earlier communist era, as is the case in, in Ethiopia today in the leadership. But the reality is what the US is, is engaging in this, using what, what little is left of its prestige and economic influence to create disaster uh, which was going to do enormous damage to the region. It's going to throw the lower Red Sea region into some degree of chaos and and questionable security and stability for the Red Sea sewers sea lane on which the world so vitally depends. And to what end? Now, I suspect that there is a strong personal and economic link between a number of US officials and TPLF officials vast quantities in the billion, many billions of dollars have changed hands from the US during the Obama administration, particularly to support the TPLF in order for the Obama administration at that time to gain uh, access for bases and the like against uh, Islamist terrorists. I think that, that some unhealthy relationships have, have been built up. Uh, but the bottom line is that there is no benefit in any of this for the United States or the West, or for that matter, any of the trading countries of the world. But certain people want certain things to happen and, and they're doing it again as they did in the breakup of Yugoslavia. And we will see countless lives being lost. And once again, we're seeing the, the United Nations uh, being drawn into that to legitimize 
the interventions of foreign powers in this in this conflict. Uh, we have to ask where where does this end? Where does this go? And I and I'm particularly conscious of this because we're now in November this year at the 80th anniversary of the final battle which saw the Axis powers defeated for the first time in World War II and driven out of Ethiopia. Uh, and at that stage, uh, Ethiopia had paid a huge price for the Italian invasion, uh, which began in 1935. And they fought until 1941 when the emperor returned and he had some British support and they were able to evict the Italians. Well and good. But if we remember that during that Italian occupation, the emperor went to the League of Nations in Geneva and begged for the League of Nations to use its alleged moral authority and uh, bargaining power to stop the Italians and to put sanctions on the Italians so that they would have to withdraw. And the League of Nations failed to do that. And the emperor left the podium saying, today it is us, tomorrow it will be you. And we're at this situation today where the United Nations is this time being misused by the United States uh, for intervention, uh, requesting intervention uh, against stability in, in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia had, since 1941, trusted Britain and then particularly the United States to be a voice of democracy, freedom and stability and has now been abandoned in this respect. Uh, and I think if we see the breakup of, of uh, Ethiopia today and the role, the, the appalling roles of the United Nations and the African Union in all of this, uh, we have to say, well, today it is the Ethiopians once again. And what does that mean for us tomorrow? Yeah, your assessment uh, lines up pretty much with uh, that of my recent guest, uh, Lawrence uh, Freeman. So I, I think you're, you're uh, pretty spot on. And indeed, these are interesting times, a lot of history repeating itself. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Your website is, if I'm not mistaken, the best website to visit is strategicstudies.org. And if people follow the International Strategic Studies Association on your LinkedIn, uh, on occasion, they can get free access to portions of the monthly uh, strategic policy journal and sometimes the entire journal uh, itself. I think you recently for the month of October uh put it uh, up there in LinkedIn for free. So is there any other website or project uh, for us to know about? No, the others are all secure access ones for our members, and which are mostly government uh, governments around the world. Uh, that's uh, their password access ones. But uh, obviously we'd uh, welcome people to look at the amount of material we, which we can put out publicly on strategicstudies.org and LinkedIn. Uh, through the International Strategic Studies Association page on LinkedIn. So, uh, but we obviously welcome more discussion with people from around the world and, and uh, for them to participate by subscribing to our monthly journal and uh, talking to us on a regular basis because we, you know, it's, it's all about feeling the mood of the global population to see where the trends are going. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, everyone, make sure, you know, check out at least one of Greg Copley's uh, books, if you can, uh, also, which can be purchased through the website. Uh, it's always a great pleasure speaking with you, Gregory, and you provide some of the best analysis uh, on the planet. And thanks for being on Geopolitics again for the third time. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, 
leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.